Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. On today's episode, I had the privilege of interviewing Zach Carlson. Zach is a transformational life and business coach, and he pulls on so many different schools of thought in his coaching. He uses human performance, positive psychology, healing modalities like breath work, emotional release, nonviolent communication, and he has a master coach certification from the Elementum Coaching Institute, as well as a certification from Gallup Inc. as a StrengthsFinder coach. In this conversation with Zach, we explore his background in addiction, and he said that he's used any number of different drugs in the book. You name it, he's done it. He was even homeless at one point in 2012. And while Zach has always been someone who pursued what was meaningful for him, he's had a really tough go of it at different points in in his life. He, in so many words, said that as a young boy and a young man, he was just not comfortable in his own skin. He wanted to run away from himself. He couldn't regulate his nervous system. There were just so many ways that he was scared to be seen and had a tough time showing up in the world. And it looked functional on the outside, but he was really dying slowly on the inside. So I really appreciated his candor and vulnerability in this interview. He's really willing to go there. And since then, he has really helped folks from any number of different areas hone in on who they are, what they do best, how they want to show up, what's getting in the way of how they want to show up, and helping them create the life that they truly deeply desire. It's really challenging work, and Zach would not shy away from saying that. So working with him, you would find yourself pushing yourself in ways that other coaches probably haven't pushed you before, but he has such a gentle and caring and nurturing way about him as well. This conversation felt like a giant hug for my heart. It was such a warm conversation with someone who deeply cares and is always considering his place in the world and helping other people determine theirs. I don't know if there's anything more meaningful than that. So make sure that you take some notes on this conversation like you do for all the others because they all have so many good takeaways. Settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy what Zach has for us today. Zach, welcome to the show, my friend. I'm so grateful to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me on. I'm grateful to have you on. And yeah, I've been so looking forward to this conversation. I've really been looking forward to how you'll answer this question. I've been starting every single one of my interviews with the same question. And it is, what what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Mm. <laughs> I love this question because it's a it's a glimmer for me. It's a bright spot uh, in my life. My dad is an epic listener. 
and he's a really wonderful present conversationalist. And he would always ask us, uh, and he would work it in so that it didn't feel awkward and robotic, but every mealtime he would ask us, uh, what's something that you learned today? And most days, because I was a rambunctious little kid, you know, I would, I would roll my eyes and, you know, try, try to think of something clever to answer. But through repetition day after day, what he was doing was really brilliant. Because when I was at school that day, or if I was at soccer practice, and I learned something, I would bookmark it. And I'd say, that's what I'm going to share at dinner tonight. And so he really was training me and my two siblings on how to pay attention to what was happening in the world. And it's my belief that like what we pay attention to grows. And so, you know, that was kind of the seeds of today where I, I think of myself as like a very prolific learner. I, I don't associate that with being intelligent or being wise, but I do associate it with like a passion for learning, like I'm insatiable. And I think the seeds of it were at our dinner table growing up. Mm, yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna lie, I wasn't expecting that answer, because I know that you, from a young age, struggled with your identity, struggled with addiction, struggled with who you are. And I'm finding myself really curious, was that something that was more of a struggle? we'll put in air quotes out there, like when, when you left the home, that's where you felt most isolated? Or were there, were there any struggles inside the households as well? So dinner was a, a predictable moment in my day as a kid. My childhood had a lot of unpredictability in it. Uh, my parents were, got divorced when I was nine. Both of my parents also struggled with addiction. And so there, there was a bit of chaos. It wasn't mayhem, but like when I think back to the kind of little boy that I was, I always felt uncertain about the world. Like, am I, am I doing this right? What's going to happen next? What I know today is that I was hungry for predictability, structure, uh, but dinner time was one of those spots that was pretty consistent there. My path with addiction, that was a little bit later, just preteen. I started using drugs when I was 12. And, you know, that's probably also about the time when, <laughs> this is such a good question, when dinner times became a little bit more hit or miss because we had extracurriculars going on. We were a little bit older, so maybe the whole structure of what did you learn today fell away. But my initial answer was from the age of like six to 11, like those, those times at dinner. And then, yeah, there was probably a turning point there just before I became an actual teen. Mm -hmm. Was there like, I'm just following my curiosities here. I, I'm placing myself also as the... I know that we're the same Myers-Briggs personality type. We're both INFJ. Yeah. <laughs> and predictability and stability and safety all, I mean, to varying degrees, that's present for every person. But I, I think it really was probably extremely present for us. And 
I was a lot of different things as a, a child, but one of the, one of the things I really struggled with was what if you look at the prototypical groups of guys, there's like the jocks and then maybe the band geeks and the nerds and the the outcasts or like the gothic punk type. And I was like, I don't, I'm not really any of those. So what, what am I? Was, was that present for you at all as a kid? <laughs> Absolutely. And it used to be a badge of honor for me to, to feel like a chameleon. Mm. I, I felt like I could really hold my own socially, even though inside I felt a little chaotic, you know, from the outside, I could really hold my own with the, with the rebel kids, the skaters, the stoners. I could hold my own with the academic kids, the preppy ones, with the, with the jocks, with the athletes. And it wasn't just lip service. Like I, I was in sports. I skateboarded. I did drugs. I was a really wonderful student. I enjoyed learning. And so like I could, I could migrate in and out of those groups but I never felt like I actually belonged to any one of them. And there, there was this fleeting sense of like, these connections are ephemeral. Like once I, I played rugby in high school, once rugby was over, I didn't communicate with any of those people. During the summers, my academic uh, crew, I didn't do anything with them. We didn't hang out. The skaters, the stoners that I hung out with, like the, I, I knew they were always kind of available, but I never felt like I belonged. I never felt like a real authentic connection. And what I know is because I was never vulnerable in any of those circles. I, I, I figured out how to play the game and then I played it to the best of my ability. Yeah. Being a chameleon, it, in a lot of ways, it, it can be a strength. It's very adaptive, especially at, at that age. But then you lose your sense of self over time, especially over a long duration of time. And I want to put a pin in that. When you, so you, you were a lot of things as well. I felt the sense of connection when I named that about myself, that was very present for you. What did you want to do as you became of college age or, you know, in your twenties and started to point yourself more in a professional direction? Where did you start to go from there? This wasn't conscious at the time, but I wanted to disrupt. I wanted to mess with the way things were. Uh, I wanted to get into the guts of systems and organizations and find out first why structures are in place in the way that they are. And then how could I add to that? How could I contribute? And how could I do so in a way that was unintuitive? Uh, how, could I, how could I mess with people's thinking? As one of my favorite coaches, Rich Litvin says, mm -hmm. for him, coaching is about messing with people's thinking. And looking back, I think I was really interested in disrupting patterns, disrupting the kind of matrix way of being. And I think I did that out of self-preservation because these structures didn't make sense to me. They didn't feel safe to me. And so I thought hmm, maybe I could go in for my own personal reasons 
and shake things up. Mm -hmm. And before coaching, what did you, like we've already named that addiction was something you were contending with. Was profession something that even uh, took shape or took form in, in any meaningful way until post-addiction? Or were you able to functionally get by to some extent and, and start a career? And I don't know if you had your own business, but were you, were you able to function in the world before you healed yourself of, I don't want to say healed yourself of the addiction, but before you were clean and weren't using or was it something that you you were just like numbing, you were completely numbed out, nothing was really getting done functionally. And eventually you started to become this mover shaker who was disrupting systems and shaking up the matrix. For me, again, another badge of honor that I wore was that I had kind of two two lives going on at once. And it really worked until it didn't. And when it stopped working, it was an absolute disaster. And so I was able to hold it all together until I was about 28. And what that looked like for me was that on, on one side of my life, I was a guy who was following his passion. And I'm a man who has a lot of special interests. I'll get interested in something and my instinct is to just go as far into it as I possibly can. When I was a kid that looked like Legos, dinosaurs, GI Joe guys, baseball cards, I would just go as far into it obsessively as I could. And so when I was thinking about a career, when I was thinking about a profession, when I was thinking about going to school, I, I knew again at an intuitive level that I needed to at least follow something that I was interested in. And then I knew, or I believed that I would be able to figure out how to make money doing it. And so when I left high school and went into college, my, my big thing is I wanted to be a business man. That was my word. I'm a businessman and I wanted to start a nonprofit. And I went in and I started taking some of the basic courses in there and I realized how much I hated it. And right around that time, I discovered poetry and that became a special interest like overnight. And so I, I went into the world of creative writing with a fire and a fury, a passion an obsession, a kind of tunnel vision. And I was just convinced that I would be able to figure this out professionally. And so that was most of my 20s is studying languages. I got really interested in French and translation. And I was working in France as a teacher for a couple of years, translating the poetry of a poet who I really loved and admired, a Swiss poet named Blaise Sandrars. I would spend all day long learning French translating this work. It was all I did. And uh, then when I came home, I was like, I've got these skills. I believe in transferable skills. And so I was like, well, I'm going to teach French. And so I had a little side business as a tutor. And I was writing poetry of my own. I went to graduate school and studied translation, pedagogy, contemporary American poetry, um, 
And I was like, how do you make money as a poet? So I started a, a book publishing business. They're publishing first edition works of poetry. Like for me, it was, it, it was, if I'm interested in something, how can I make money doing it? Not so that I can make money, but so that I can keep doing the thing that I love more and more. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's what that looked like. But then it became too much of a good thing. I couldn't quite keep both of those masks on because meanwhile, while I'm doing all of this stuff that looks so, so good in the world, I'd go home at night and I, I would either drink myself into a blackout uh, or I would do whatever substance, drug, you name it, came along. And um, at a certain point around 28, my life imploded. Mm -hmm. And then I stopped being able to be somebody who contributes. And I was, I was completely in the dark valley of my addiction. Mm. And so the, the next logical question is, where did you go from there? What you, it sounds like 28 was a rock bottom for you. And there, there might have been initially nowhere seemingly to turn. So what did, what did you do from there? I had to hit rock bottom. I had to acknowledge that the reason why, the reasons why I was living that way had their roots in some something deeper. Uh, I had to look at the traumas that I experienced throughout my life. I had to name them. Uh, I had to be willing to do some work to integrate those experiences into the fullness of who I am. You know, that looked like 12-step recovery first group recovery free, which I love. People say sometimes, you know, coaching is so expensive. Uh, and I say, I got free coaching through 12 step programs for years before I ever hired a coach myself. It's the foundation of what I do. And so for me, I needed to look at root causes. Mm -hmm. Uh, the place that I was able to look at those root causes was through 12-step recovery. Um, I went to treatment um, four times. Uh, each time I, I got a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper. But then it was the, the rock bottom piece where I remember just looking at my life and thinking, this wasn't supposed to happen. Like I was supposed to do something magnificent with my energy. I was supposed to contribute. And, and right now I can't do that. This was not supposed to happen. I was in so much pain. I was so afraid of being seen. I wanted desperately to belong back to that piece. I didn't know how to do it. My strategies weren't working anymore. And so for me, the magic sauce was surrender. Mm -hmm. And my definition that I use, one that people have probably heard is surrender is not giving up, it's giving up the fight. Mm -hmm. And so when I looked at what was I fighting against, I was fighting against my past. 
I was fighting against the present moment because the present moment didn't feel like a safe place for me to be. I was always trying to be one step ahead strategically. That's a survival strategy for me. And when I surrendered to that moment, I was, or excuse me, when I surrendered to the moment, I was able to reset in a way. And then from there, <laughs> I, I discovered coaching, I discovered strengths finder, I discovered some of the techniques that we use, inner child work, shadow work, nonviolent communication, men's work, inner family of selves. And my instinct then, this might resonate with you, is when I learn something, then I want to share it. Yes. And so I started sharing it and one thing led to another and went into the vortex, the beautiful vortex of coaching. Uh-huh. All right, Zach. Well, I, I want to spend a lot of the time that we have remaining on coaching. And I also am curious, in, in the 12-step program, is there any one moment that stands out to you most where you, you felt like, yes, like I'm, I'm finally able to lay the sword down, to lay my armor down? Like, wow, what a transformational experience it is to be able to share my my broken self and to just be received like are there are there any moments that stand out to you yeah there's one moment immediately that came through and it's i was in a 12-step meeting it was a little bit of a rougher crowd which i i really like people who are willing to really share the rawness of their life their experience i really trust people when I'm able to witness them and like the messiness of life and then also witnessing them and their willingness to do something about it. And there was this one guy who scared me. He was a muscly guy tattooed just to look at him overwhelmed me. And I always kept an eye on him because I, I didn't trust him at the time. I always listened to what he shared because it was really good. It was good stuff. But I also felt afraid of him, just like he seemed like a, a roughneck, some guy who, who could kill me. And I, I remember just, you know, week after week, that experience of I wonder if this guy's going to be there. And I would, I would sit on the other side of the room from him. And after a meeting one day, he, I see him looking at me and he makes his way through the crowd. And in, in my mind, like something's going to go down. There's, I said something that offended him and he walked up to me and he hugged me and he just brought me like chest to chest with him and he hugged me. And then he put his hands on his shoulders and he looked me in the eyes and he said, I see you brother. And I mean, that was life changing to me. One, because I needed that hug in that moment from anybody, but I got it from him. And two, he showed me that my thinking can be really, really off point. Me, my story that I was telling about him was absolutely yeah. wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and, and to me, that was a pivotal moment. Yeah. Wow. I felt that one too. So thank you for sharing that. <laughs> it's something I, I can't, exactly identify in a one-to-one -one way with that moment but there have certainly been times where if I scan the room or even on 
outside of a room, just scan society at large, and I make up a story about someone, I am able to see their full humanity, and it it shifts my entire paradigm in just a one little moment right there. And in a lot of ways, that's what we do as coaches, right? It's we we say, you know, your mirror is faced this way. What if you, what if we turned it all the way over here? And there's this whole other way of thinking <laughs> that that you were not looking at before. Yeah. And I know that's a lot of the work that you do, Zach. So you already named a lot of the modalities and tools and groups that have been really helpful for you. Nonviolence communication. Uh, what you, you said inner inner voices is. So there's IFS. Yes. Which I, I'm not uh, certified in but it's the inner family of selves Mm. and it's this idea it's parts work. Yes. It's, or excuse me, it's in, in internal, internal family systems systems. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, when we say like a part of me feels happy, a part of me feels like we're in, in this paradigm, we're talking about actual parts of ourselves that have uh, splintered off. And in the work, it's to reintegrate them into the whole. Yes. So IFS, NVC, uh, inner child work, kind of a classic, strengths finder. I do like a lot of the, the typing, Myers-Briggs, human design, astrology. They're not, they're not the foundation of my coaching, but they can be really useful, Enneagram. Mm-hmm. But then evolutionary biology, man, working with the central nervous system. Mm -hmm. That to me is foundational. That's ground level. Yeah. So when you started working with a coach, what were some of the discoveries that you made around yourself? Like what were maybe the top strengths that you uncovered or uh, shadows that you dug into that you realized that maybe you were hiding from your whole life that you realized, oh my God, there's, there's so much power behind these shadows if I'm if I'm willing to sit with them be with them open to them like what were what were some of the initial discoveries that you made when you were working with a coach the first one came before we even worked together it was when I paid when I paid the coaching fee mm-hmm. that that was one of the most transform transformative coaching moments I ever had Um, because I, it was the first coach that I worked with. His fee was more money than I'd ever spent on anything in my life besides a car or a house. And something had to change. He was the guy that I was going to work with one way or another. I was going to figure out how to pay him to have access to his coaching. And I remember hesitating. I've got my credit card in my hand. I'm shaking. I'm, I'm starting to resent him. How dare he charge this? Money? Like it was, a, it, it was, it was a, a mess in my head. I, I paid the fee. And then a few minutes later, I started to have access to this part of me that maybe had never been online. It was this, this part of me that on one hand, really wanted to get the most out of this, like wanted to get, get my money's worth. And then another part of me that was like, Hey dude, you just invested in yourself. Mm. Like, 
like you, you can't give what you just bought to someone else and you also can't resell it. I can resell my car, but I can't resell this. Like th that was the first time that I really acknowledged, like I just made a big investment in myself and I can point to the dollar amount on it, right? It's investing in ourselves is not always about money, but when it is, if we pay attention, we might feel something shift. And so all of a sudden I was in this new reality where I'm now a man who invests in himself. Mm. That was huge for me. Yeah. And I want to, I want to keep exploring a little bit more. So you, now you invested in like that. I can, I can sense how energetically there's, there's something that really shifts there. Right. That's I'm guessing it was thousands and thousands of dollars that you invested in, in working with this coach. And so just that, it, it re shifts the narrative around like maybe I'm the type of person who quietly suffers and white knuckles it through life into I'm the person who invests, thinks I'm worth it to pay this much to be the man I want to be. Right. So like that in, in and of itself, I mean, that's one of the reasons that a coach like that charges so much. It, it, before any of the work is even done, it already, <laughs> it's like, oh, my energy is ready to be changed. From there, what was the coach most skilled at drawing out of you? What, what did you most learn from working with? Was it him? Yeah, him. Yeah, from him. <clears throat> so he, he picked up this thing that I do of scattering my energy. He picked up on that right away, and he first helped me see that I do that. And so I, like I said, I have all of these special interests and I will put 10% of my life force energy into this and then 10% into nine other things. And then I'll, I'll sit back and I'll say, I wonder why I don't feel fulfilled. I wonder why these things aren't popping off. And with, for me, with 10% of my energy in these 10 different buckets, things won't pop off. And then he had me look at why do I do that? And for me, I do that because it's safe. There isn't a big risk involved. And I can always go back to this, this thought that, well, I've got all this other stuff going on. So of course, it's not going to work. And so he, he had me identify a thing that I do, and then he had me see the reason for it, because he introduced me to this idea that what we do is not random. Mm -hmm. There's a reason for the self-sabotage. It's not punishment. It's in his paradigm and in my paradigm, it's survival. There's a, a really good reason at some level when we, we, we blow things up in our lives. And so then he had me look at, well... Why do you do that? Why does it feel safe to be kind of in on a bunch of little things instead of going all in on two things or three things? And in order to answer that question, we had to look at childhood wounding. We had to look at trauma. We had to look at my parents. We had to look at my relationships, like my primary love relationships throughout my life. We had to look at the teachers that I was following, like who's conditioning my thoughts where am I investing my energy? What am I literally doing with my sexual energy, my life force 
energy, like what what's happening at that level. And so it was this can of worms that opened up and we spent five months kind of unpacking from that one place. And that's to me, the interdimensional nature of coaching. We could have picked something else and the same thing would have happened, mm. right? It, it, there was nothing like particularly magical about what he noticed where it's like, I'm scattered. And, and, and we went hard on that, but we could have picked a number of other things and done the same depth of work. Mm-hmm. And so like, what was maybe the one or two things that you went all in on from there? What you, you went from scattered into focus energy. I, I have an idea that maybe it was your coaching practice that you have now, but what was the, the one thing that you most went all in on? And then, and then from there, I want to, you know, we, we've done enough digging on Zach background. We'll get into the work that you do with your clients after. Awesome. For me, the thing I needed to go all in on was foundations. Mm -hmm. I needed to figure out what works for Zach to find grounded safety, confidence, and security in my body, in my life. Mm -hmm. And what I learned in that work is that I was walking around triggered all the time, all the time. To, to, to the point that like I started noticing when I go to bed at night, what's my posture like? I would never, for example, I would never sleep with my back to the door, right? So I was going to sleep facing the door unconsciously because in my mind, if someone comes through that door, I'm going to be able to see them and I'm going to be able to, to strike them. And so like I was triggered all the time and I didn't even know it. Hyper vigilant, hyper alert untrusting, always in a defensive posture energetically. And so the thing that I went all in on was physically, like, how can I ground my energy? How can I signal to my nervous system that we are safe right now? And then from there, like you said, I I was able to go hard on my business. Like, and for me, business is synonymous with serving others. Yeah. I actually do want to spend a a little bit of time on the nervous system because I know that that's something that you spend a lot of time on and understanding when you, when you say the word safety or anything that implies like our body is at ease, Mm -hmm. the nervous system is inherently tied into that. So could you, could you explain a little bit more about how the nervous system ties into your sense of belonging, safety, uh, really feeling like at peace in your body. I think of the nervous system as an ancient creature that lives in our body. Uh, We can think of the, the brain as the central hub of the nervous system, the brain stem and the spinal cord uh, being primary functions of it. And then we can think that, Uh, from the brain, the brainstem, the spinal cord, there's these nerves and bundles of nerve ganglia that extend all the way out to our fingertips and our toes. And that the body is filled with sensors. 
and the sensors are always taking in information, evaluating that information, sending it uh, either to our gut or our heart where there's neurons or our brain with what that information means. And so uh, I also believe that the nervous system operates perfectly, mm-hmm. that it's, it's never malfunctioning, even though it might, might create undesirable results in our lives because it's interpreting things as threats that aren't. It's interpreting situations as, as life or death when they aren't which then creates a response or a reaction in us that is undesirable. We don't feel safe. We don't feel present. We might isolate and hide out. We might overcompensate and puff our chest. But no matter what, I believe that the nervous system's job is to keep us alive. Mm -hmm. I also believe that we're more than just biological creatures. We also have a spiritual nature, an emotional nature, a social nature, a linguistic nature. And so learning how to honor the function of the nervous system, which is just their scanning, evaluating, reporting back to us so that we can take an action that will keep us alive, learning how to braid that together harmoniously with the social body, right? The part of us that goes and interacts, the emotional body, the part of us that responds to life through feeling, uh, with the intellectual body, with the spiritual body. Yeah, wow. So this gives, I'm getting a really broad picture of the work, not only that you've done on yourself, but now probably the work that you're doing with your clients. Mm. And I would love to hear... When someone, if someone went up to you right now and said, Zach, I am interested in coaching, they, I don't know, maybe they don't have any necessarily, necessarily any background in coaching, but they're interested. They've heard the first 40 minutes of this conversation and they're saying like, what that's, I'm interested in what Zach is up to. I want to work with Zach as a coach. Where would you take them from, from there? So we all have a similar biology, right? We have a heart, we have a brainstem. Um, Most of us have kidneys, but beyond that, everybody that I've ever met, everyone I've ever coached, everyone I've ever fallen in love with is a universe in and of themselves. And so for me, the, the very first thing that I do with someone who's interested in coaching is spend an hour with them, getting to know about their life, a little bit of their biography, but then learning about their beliefs, what's what's structuring their actions, their beliefs, the rules that they play by, their fears, of course, their strengths, their talents, their gifts. But ground level, I do not believe in going in hot and just coaching somebody cold. Mm -hmm. I think that that's possible and sometimes necessary in a crisis, but ground level for me working with people is spaciousness, luxuriating in their stories. It's a lot like what you're doing here right now, 
I can feel myself just feeling very seen, very heard, very held by you masterfully. And so creating an experience where a person gets to be the center of the universe for me, when I'm working with someone, they have all of my focus. I don't have other things going on around me. They get all of me. And that can be uh, really alarming to people. Uh, that can make people really uncomfortable because it's rare. Mm -hmm. And so giving people a, a chance to be the only thing going on for someone else is where I start. And then from there, it's all personalized. I don't have a program that I run people through cookie cutter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a trap that I find myself falling into sometimes is like looking for the perfect methodology or the, the, the quote unquote right way to coach someone. Mm -hmm. And one of the greatest gifts that you can give any person is your undivided attention and the openness to you're the only thing in the world that matters right now. I'm fully interested in you. I want to, I just want to see you. <laughs> what drives you, right? What, how do you operate? How do you move through the world? What has conditioned you to be that way? And, and what, what are you seeking to change about that? What are you, what are you believing? And being able to hold the space, like the, the more that I dig into coaching, the more that I'm becoming pretty certain that the space is that you hold is, I don't know, I'd make up a big number, 80% of it. You know, like if you're just really there and saying like, I'm wide openly curious about the human in front of me, you're already a good chunk of the way there and being a really wonderful coach. And it sounds, it sounds easy, but it could be really difficult to do that. We're, we're not necessarily used to dropping everything and, and being fully here in this moment. So that, what that brings me to is, is two things. One is, what are some ways that you are able to stay? Because, you know, it's me and you in the conversations that we've had, Zach, it, it feels like a mirror back and forth of, holy shit, this guy is so present. Holy shit, this guy is so present. Like, we're, we kind of are feeding off of that energy with each other. And I'd be curious to hear what are some ways that you are able to cultivate that to really bring your full attention into the moment maybe practices and I, I'll, there's a, a second part but I'll get back to that after this answer professionally I need to be sure that I'm taking my own medicine I need to be sure that I'm taking impeccable care of myself and that does not mean bubble baths uh, there's some gentleness to it but it also means challenging myself every single day um, having goals of my own that I'm working towards, both ones that I share publicly and ones that I share privately. And so making sure that I am taking absolutely the best care of myself that I can so that I am a clean and safe vessel for holding space. Mm -hmm. And so some of those practices for me are the ones you might imagine daily meditation, daily grounding practices through my breath. And then for me, it's also through nature, uh, walking barefoot on the ground. For me, strenuous, exhausting exercise, challenging my body in a, in a 
compassionate way. I don't believe in abusing the body through exercise, but really like taking myself to the absolute edge of what I think is possible every single day physically. Cold showers, which have given me, <laughs> you know, lots of repetitions on being uncomfortable and training the nervous system to say we can be uncomfortable and not die. And then doing my own inner work. And so I, I'm always working with coaches of my own um, groups. And because I'm doing all of that, when I come and sit down with somebody, I, I can be fully there because my cup is full. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that I think is the quick and dirty on that. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a way culturally in which we think being at peace is dependent on some sort of external reality, right? Like being on a beach with no worries, nothing on your plate, (laughs) just staring at the water. And when I, if I were to just collapse everything that you said into one thing, it's like those, that is the recipe for being at peace, right? It's lining yourself up with something that matters and, and acting on it, doing it, having good practices for the body, challenging your body, doing Mm -hmm. breath work, things that are grounding, meditating, journaling. And from there, if everything, you could be at peace in any external reality, really. Mm -hmm. And that's that that's what I'm hearing is what allows you to be so present. Something that I would add to that for me, because you're really you gave pretty much a fully well rounded way for someone to be at peace with themselves nutrition and what you put into your body, right? What you eat is instrumental. That was actually my on-ramp into coaching was nutrition. Mm. And the how profoundly I, I realized I was shaped by what I was putting into my body. And for me, it was from nutrition that I realized there's other things that I'm if not putting into my body are really affecting my body, including my relationships with others, my relationship with the world, my relationship with my breath, Mm. man, like if you have all those things going and then you do the inner work, it's that's it. Like that's everything right there to me. Mm. I love that dude. Yeah. Yeah. So the second part, it's, it's not necessarily related to, what you just shared, but it was something that you named in when you are present for the first hour with a client. Sometimes someone is not ready to be fully seen or has an aversion, right? Like it, it can, there is something in their nervous system that goes, well, this is unfamiliar. I'm, I'm not used to having someone's full undivided attention. I imagine that that might've even been true for you at some point. It's certainly, it's been true for me. The first time I went to a therapist, I remember the first session, I almost didn't want to say anything. It was, it was too uncomfortable for me to like, my whole nervous system was in overload and I was able to get through it, but I wasn't ready to, you know, go there and start discussing my past or parts of me that I was ashamed of. It was just like having someone's full undivided attention for an hour was already this magnificent challenge for me to get through. (laughs) I'm wondering if that client shows up for you, like, what do you, what, what do you do from there? Or do you, 
does it become a right like I need to be more of the talker that this go around and or like how do you help that person feel safe I think first things first is I as coaches I don't think that we should ever walk into a session thinking it's a given that we'll be able to help that person. Mm. Um, and, and, and why I say that, I, I think that most good coaches at some level can, but if I go in there and it's like, I need to help this person, I, I, I need to have them have a breakthrough and, and it needs to, if it needs to, it, need, it look a certain way. It needs to, to, to me, that creates an unsafe container because I already have an agenda going in there. And so that's ground level for me. And how I act, how that actually works is I come in with curiosity and pretty much nothing else. Curiosity, my belief in myself in being able to be present and hold space. Um, and what I love is that there is no limit to how curious we can be. And so allowing myself to be led with clients through nothing more than curiosity, it helps signal to them that I don't have an agenda, that I'm not hoping we get to this certain place. And even through Zoom, there is a application for our neuroception, right? The, the, like you're reading me right now, I'm reading you right now, we're making, drawing conclusions about that and it's happening without our say-so, right? And so when I have an agenda, if I had an agenda here, it's like, oh, I, I really wanna be sure that, that Michael's listeners know this about me. You'd be able to sense that at some level. Uh -huh. um, it's like that, that salesman-y thing where it's like, we, we can tell if the salesman is slimy or not. I believe that's neuroception. That's our limbic system. That's our nervous system, all the sensors, all the eyes in every cell of our body. And so to me, curiosity, not having expectations for the person, patience, um, and then also having, having actual tools and resources to share that might help that person in between our sessions, things that they can do on their own when they don't have me looking at them. And then the last thing, and I think this is really important, is it's not up to me as a coach to decide if this space is safe or not. Mm. I will never say to a client, this is a safe space for you to share anything that you want. It's not up to me to decide if it's safe or not. Instead, I can say, this is a space where I will hold you in absolute unconditional love and acceptance. This is a space where anything that you share with me is allowed. And that I've been doing this for 10 years. I think I've heard it all by now. And I will never judge you. This is a space that I give you full permission to come as you are. And if that means that you don't want to talk very much, I got you. I'm going to lead the conversation that round. If you come here and you just need to download over and over again, I'm going to be listening to what you're saying and tracking for things that maybe you haven't heard in your words. And so 
not telling them this is a safe space, but instead saying, here's a bunch of reasons why this space could feel safe for you. Let's play. Let's play. Mm -hmm. There's a saying that I heard, luckily not from my parents ever. Not, I don't think once from my parents, but I heard many times from other parents, do as I say, not as I do when I was growing up. And <laughs> man, uh, we, are, we are not wired for that at all, right? We mm. model what we see especially as children, we model our parents and people we look up to's behavior. So yeah, what I'm hearing is if you if you tell someone, this is a safe space, you feel free to bring whatever parts of yourself that is not very that that is the do as I say, not as I do of coaching, right? It's what the only way to actually create safety is for the other person to experience safety. And what I'm hearing is the only way that that can happen is if you say, this isn't about me, but I am here with unconditional love, whatever, whatever is present. And yeah, that that's, that's really what it's all about right there. Right. It's, there's a, a real surrender to this isn't, this isn't about Zach or this isn't about Mike. This is just about whatever wants to come through this, this moment right here. Yeah. So there's, there's a couple of things that I wanted to uh, get to with you because I know, well, before that, actually, is there, is there anything else that you want to say about your one-to-one coaching that, that we haven't named so far in this conversation? Well, I think you just said it uh, really well, is that it's not about me, mm-hmm. right? Like, like when we make our leadership about us, it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what is it about then? It's about service. Um, and I think that that's, that's, I just want to state that really clearly because you, you use those words, like when, when we make it about the other person, right? Sometimes we invite them into a paradigm that they don't experience very often, if ever, where like you have all of me here with you, um, which is to say that it's, it's not about me. I, I never have an agenda going in. There's no, never some place where it's like, we need to get here in our session. But instead, it's like, where could we possibly go here when all of you is welcome, when all of you is allowed, when my commitment is to showing up here in unconditional love and acceptance, what's available through life then? Mm. So that's, that, that came through from my heart there. Beautiful. So the, just one lingering question. I want to get to men's work from here. I know it's something that's been really important for you. I guess there's a way in which I make up the story that, you know, with com- completely boundless, structureless coaching, someone might go like, I'm here with, with Zach to, you know, like I want, I need some measurable goals, right? Like I, what, what about, uh, what, if we don't have any, if Zach has no agenda and if I, what if I don't have an agenda, like where, where am I going to go? I need, I need something to move towards. What would, so like, what are the ways that you're able to blend someone who, I imagine you work with a lot of people who are very structured, regimented, like how do you weave in the, the openness, expansiveness and the strategic structured goal setting? So that emerges 
from that initial space that's created. Mm-hmm. The, the agenda comes out of that experience. And sometimes it takes a few weeks. Sometimes it takes a month of meeting together. But that, that agenda emerges out of that soil. And then from there, like one of the things that I really love to do is to get tactical, to get strategic, to find benchmarks, to establish missions, right? I've moved away from this idea of goals somewhat in terms of using that word and replaced it with with mission. And especially when I'm working with a man, because that's part of the, the classical motivation, right? Mission-oriented uh, living. And speaking generally there, I know that there's infinite types of men on this planet. But so, yeah, the, the foundation is establishing a frequency, an energetic uh, reciprocating frequency of trust that all of them is welcome. And then from there, often the, the agenda emerges really effortlessly. People feel safe to admit like, some shadow about themselves like oh i've been i've been like hustling after money all of this time thinking that at some level if i make enough money i'll be lovable and then it's like oh interesting well (laughs) do you still want to make money if you find out that you're lovable as you are if you truly believe that if we do work together and you discover that you're lovable if you have a penny in your pocket or a million dollars in your pocket, do you still want to make that money? And most of the time people are like, yeah, I do, but for a different reason. And so then that's easy to get strategic around, right? Creating an agenda around um, like a heart-based entrepreneurialism, conscious entrepreneurialism, like let's go. Yeah. Woo. And what, what would you say is your mission right now, Zach? For me, it's simple. I want to help one person a day. Yeah. Um, and, and I want to know objectively that I've helped that person. Mm-hmm. That, that's my mini mission. Mm-hmm. Bigger than that, it's that I want to support. I used to have a number. It was 100,000. Mm-hmm. But now it's, I, I want to support as many people in this personal development space achieve their goals as possible. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what that comes from is this thing, it, it's like a Tony Robbins style quote, but he says, you know, the best way to meet your own goals is to help as many people as you can meet theirs. Mm-hmm. And so for me, baseline mission, help one person a day. And then beyond that is that I want to help you. I want to help as many people in our space achieve their goals. I have tangible financial goals, uh, of course. Um, I have business targets that would be boring to talk about here. <laughs> and so like, I, I need to keep it, keep it tangible too. Um, but mission wise, it's like when, when I go to sleep at night and I know like I made an impact on this person's life, the, the other and, 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 and I'm bl- so blessed in, in this part of the conversation, like 
I think that I, I help a lot more than one person a day. That requires me to get uncomfortable. I am an introvert. And so it's, it's not always like instinctual to, to be in my extroverted energy. But like the other day at the gym, uh, there's this older lady and we got to talking. She had a, a spirit. She has a spirit that's living in her house. And she was so embarrassed to say that. And she said, you have long hair, so you might understand. And we were talking and she's like, do you know anyone? And like, she was just so uncomfortable, so embarrassed, but like that whatever's happening in her house was driving her crazy. And so I was able to connect her with a friend of mine who actually works in that space. And like it, it changed her day. And so again, to me, it's not just helping people as a coach, it's helping people in my community in those little ways. Mm, yeah. So there's a story that I heard. It was it was on a podcast that Tim Ferriss was on, actually, where he shared about how when IBM was at their best, like they were they were breaking sales records in their industry left and right. I think their CEO at the time was sat down and asked, what, what, what were you doing? How were people so consistently meeting their sales quotas? And, and how were you able to keep raising the benchmark up and up and up? And there's a way in which we think, you know, in Western societies, especially that it's all about shooting for the moon at all times, right? Have these like big, hairy, audacious goals at all times. And the CEO of IBM, whose name escapes me, said something to the effect of, I made their sales quotas as low as possible. I wanted every single person to hit that benchmark because when we hit our goals, then we, we want to keep going. And it's, it seems really counterintuitive, but what I'm hearing you say is when you are connected to like, really, if you are helping one person, if you're serving one person, that is your medicine. And that's going to, that's going to be what keeps the engine going anyway. Right. So when you help one person, you go, I, I reached my goal, but that felt really amazing. So I'm going to help another person. <laughs> and so I'm going to keep going and going. And if our goal is to help a million people, that could be good. You know, like, it's nice to have a target to move to, but that can be really fleeting. It can be, that's not as much in our control as like, I can help one person right now in, in this moment. So there's a way in which if we can hold space for both of those things that I come back to the IBM story a lot, because it reminds me, you know, just, just do, do what feels great right now. And serving one person is tangible, feels great. And in, if you do that enough, then the, the bigger number comes anyway. Mm. I love that breakdown, the connection to that IBM story. I'd never heard that before. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, th there's a thing that I created called the magic of thinking small. Mm. And it's, and it's that it's, it's, it's a version of what you described there. And um, psychological, we get a little hit of dopamine uh, when we do things like that. We also get it when we're scrolling around on social media too, but I, I really, really love your breakdown there, Michael. Yeah. Thanks, Zach. Well, I wanted to talk about men's work now 
and how that's prevalent in your life. It's something that I, I don't know how many of my listeners will necessarily be too familiar with. So let's start with just defining what is men's work. And from there, I would love to hear maybe groups that you've joined or how it's been foundational for you in your life and, and maybe how you use that with your clients as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> first things first, men's work is kind of a reclamation of something that men have done forever. If we look back in history all over the planet, men have a tradition of coming together around a fire or an activity and sharing their energy. I'll pause here too to say that there are other genders, other identities besides men, and there are spaces devoted to those people too. Mm -hmm. Men's space is for people who identify as men. And so it's not to be exclusionary, because there are spaces for people of other genders, other identities that are open to them. It wouldn't be right for me to think that I could speak to the experience of someone who is not a man. I'm a man, that's the experience that I can speak to. And so that's my disclaimer, because sometimes people get a little wrapped around the axle, like, well, what about all these other people? And it's like, there's spaces for them two that are that that are communities. And so for me, men's work is self study about self leadership, seen through the lens of masculinity. And there's some aspects of that that are a little bit cookie cutter we can look to masculine and feminine energetics and see what are the masculine qualities energetically. They're what you might imagine, it's directness, um, action-oriented, motivated through challenge, and in pursuit of greater and greater levels of freedom. Mm -hmm. And so, for me, in my men's spaces, it's a place to go and practice masculinity the way that a baseball player might go to the batting cage and practice his swings. It's also a space that for me has been really sacred because it's revealed to me issues, challenges, obstacles that I have around being a man by identity and biology in this world. And it's a place for me to go and be seen. And then to also see and witness other men too in their journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is there, like in the groups that you're in, is there a, a certain structure in the way that a meeting is held a certain number of people that are typically in a group? And then yeah, we'll, we'll start there. Yeah, it's in every group I've ever been in, I'm in four men's groups right now. I've worked with men's coaches. And in every space I've ever been in, it's a defined container. So there's 
an established number of men who are committed to the group. It's not a drift in and drift out scenario ever. So a committed number of men to the group defined beginning and end time. So some structure. And then what happens inside of that structure is where there's some variety. Oftentimes in a men's group, we'll open with a check-in. We'll go around, just check in on where you're at in that moment. Um, I really like it when groups share their agreements. So here's the here's how we agreed, committed to showing up here. Some of them may be classic agreements like be supportable, be on time, listen, <laughs> pretty basic ones. But then depending on the group, there may be a rule, no crosstalk. When someone else is talking, don't interrupt him and don't talk about what he just shared without asking him first if he's open to feedback. So stuff like that. I really love, love, love environments that are highly structured for doing this kind of work. That is grounding for me. It brings out my best. I feel more inclined to be vulnerable, more inclined to call men forward when, when it's appropriate, when there's structure predictability there. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what, so I've been in, we'll call them proxies to men's groups. I, I've been in a group coaching that was targeted for men and I've attended men's groups meetings. And in some ways, they've been really powerful for me because it's a space where people from different backgrounds, different ages, people that in the past, I would have made up the story that we don't have much common ground to uh, stand on together. We, I realize we are all cut from the same cloth. You know, we, we all, we have a shared humanity and we all in so many ways are really after the same thing. And that's been one of my favorite aspects of not just men's work, but coaching in general is I, I can really, if I'm present in the moment, see someone's full humanity. And part of what gets there or what gets us there to see each other's humanity is to, to be able to see each other in a little bit of our mess. And so are there any moments that you can think of it in men's work where something, someone brought their mess and then something bigger emerged as, as a result of that? <laughs> yeah, me, 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 me. I was on a men's team a few years ago for like six months. It was this online space. It was uh, designed around an, a kind of an intensity of experience. And we were doing this activity where everyone had a chance to be in the hot seat. And then all the other men, there were maybe 10 men would say, here's how I see you showing up effectively. So some praise. And then here's how I show you show, see you showing up ineffectively. So a, a criticism or a critique. It's, it, it's a little nerve wracking because you get the good and then you get the uncomfortable. You get the desirable and then you get the undesirable. And I remember sitting there and hearing the ex exact same thing from all 10 men. They said something positive about me. And then they said, and we've never seen your mess. And I don't trust you because of that. 
And I was like, oh, I, it, it, it landed with me because I realized that unconsciously I was still hiding out. I did not want any of them to see me when I didn't have the answer. I didn't want any of them to see me uh, when I was in overwhelm, shame, guilt. Here's a space that I'm committed to showing up fully. And all of them were just like, you know, pointing at the same thing. And so what that did for me is it gave me permission to see how it feels to be seen by these men who I really respect, really admire in being messy. And their challenge to me was that I, I, I could only drop into our Marco Polo thread when I was feeling off my game. And I was like, well, you might never hear from me there. Nope. Just like my dad asking us that question uh, in the day, it had me finding it and noticing it. I realized I'm off my game quite a lot. And so I was checking in on Marco Polo when I was feeling flustered, when I was feeling embarrassed and, and, and just getting repetition after repetition in on them seeing me in this mess and them staying right by my side, loving me, not teasing me, not judging me, saying, we see you, we see, I've been there before. Oh yeah, dude, that, that's me every morning. And I had never felt so at peace with the ups and downs in my life. And it trained me in, it was like a boot camp. And I carry that wisdom with me today. It's like, people don't care as much as I think they care about how perfect I am. They just don't, <laughs> they got their own stuff going on. Oh man, thank you so much for sharing that. That, that resonates so deeply with me. So one of the things that popped up for me, as you said that Zach, if, if I was asked the question, where do I feel my most unfinished? I'd probably say something along the lines of, I'm able to really go there. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'd be curious to hear what other people would think. And I'd be curious to get feedback from 10 people in my life right now about where I might be holding myself back the most. But what I, when I hear you say that, I'm thinking I, I hide out maybe a, a little bit as well in uh, trying to be perfect or even in the way that I am sharing vulnerably, it's in a controlled enough way <laughs> that it doesn't, it's not really showing my mess. It maybe is showing 70% of my mess. Mm -hmm. And so that it's something that I want to sit with. And if I ask you the question, where do you feel the most unfinished right now? What, what comes up for you? I think I still bullshit people in my personal life. I think that I people please in certain ways that keeps me from truly being seen by other people. And it keeps me from truly supporting the people in my life who I care about and love most. I've come a long way in that. I, I, one of my big survival strategies uh, throughout childhood adolescence was to people please. We've got fight, flight, freeze, and fawn, which is, which is what I'm talking about. And, I, and I've noticed the last four or five months, this tension come up in me when I realize that I have really held back with someone 
in my personal life and people please them. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to get into specifics around, you know, like bringing in any, any people, but is there a way in which you would, is there a generic way in which you would say is a pattern maybe around like I'm, I'm bullshitting with someone in my personal life? Is it just, yeah, I'll, I'll let you answer. Are you asking how do I notice or identify when I'm doing it? Yeah, like uh, one pattern for me might be if someone if someone in my personal life asks me how coaching is going, I might I might meet them at a level that I think is what they want to hear instead of sharing what's most sincere for me, right? I I might share the amount of people that I'm working with and the how proud I am of the podcast guests that I'm having on but that that might not be what's most if if I was sitting down with you that that might not be that I'm almost certain it wouldn't be the answer that I would share it would be it'd be different so is there's a way in which that is bullshitting and I'm curious what like what would be a pattern for you that you would categorize as bullshitting hmm I think when I find myself thinking about the conversation that I had later, and then maybe building a case against that person in my head, mm-hmm. not not against them in a in a big way, but like where it's like I I think I can solve their problem, or I. I replay the the conversation and maybe it goes a, a different way. And then I start thinking to myself strategically, how can I have that conversation with them again so that I can say those things to them? And I start to, like, when I start to do that, uh, not only does it take me out of the moment, it takes me out of my heart. It puts me into like a competition almost. But when that's a pattern. And I've never thought about this before. So you're catching me really raw. But like, I think that that is one of the indicator lights, like on my inner dashboard of when I've people pleased someone, uh, I haven't actually served them at all. Like, I was talking about this on my social media last week, where it's, it's a disservice uh, to them and to me especially if I come away from it up in my head about it. But to me, like if I start replaying a conversation in my head and figuring out ways that it could go differently next time, I'm not in curiosity anymore. Mm -hmm. And that would definitely indicate a time that I was probably out of my integrity in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this conversation is is leaving me with plenty to reflect on for myself, Zach. So I wanna I wanna thank you for your candor and your uh, your willingness to go there on any number of different questions, areas of exploration. It's it's one thing that's apparent about you right away. I mean, as soon as you and I started talking, I I, I got the felt sense this guy has done the work. He's doing the work. And he's, he is someone that I experience safety with. So uh, I'm appreciating that about you in this moment. Mm-hmm. And 
I have just a, a couple more questions that I wanted to ask you. Are there any books that you would recommend based on what you know about me and who might be listening uh, to this type of conversation, books that you would recommend for folks who are interested in self-discovery in any way or any, any books at all that you'd recommend to folks that are tuned in? I really love The Little Prince. It's not a traditional personal development book, but I believe that there is like a transmission in The Little Prince that speaks to, playfully speaks to all of the big, sometimes the hardest parts of this work. Um, it's a children's book. It's even the translations will do this. It's a French author, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. And I mean, it talks about habit, resentment, shadow work, inner child, big time. Uh, it talks about going on a hero's journey, uh, self-love, codependency. I mean, it, it hits on all of these topics that you don't even have to notice them the first time you read through it to receive that medicine. Mm -hmm. So The Little Prince. Uh, I also really love, oh, this is going to sound so weird, but Moby Dick. Mm. Great work, classical literature, simply for the style that it's written in. And then, and then I'll, I'll maybe answer your question more directly, but the style that Moby Dick is written in is so over the top, uh, extravagant to the point of ridiculous. And it's, and it's about one man's perception of himself that is only shared by himself. No one else sees this guy in this way, but he is just like determined. And it's inspiring to me to read 600 pages of this guy who is just like, he is who he believes himself to be. And the world is like crashing all around him and he is committed to being himself. And so those would be my two unintuitive books. In intuitive, I think uh, everyone should read Atomic Habits, mm -hmm. James Clear, like that's an easy one. Um, there's a book that I've been really jamming on called The Art of Impossible. And it's Stephen Cutler. And what I love about that is that he is building on decades of research around finding flow, finding purpose and meaning. Uh, and he's blending a lot of research with what some might call a spiritual perspective about like, like, if you believe in yourself, you can do anything. Mm -hmm. It's like, prove it. And he's like, okay. And he, he kind of <laughs> proves it in that book. And so those two, and then, uh, I think nonviolent communication, the, the book itself is a great primer, but you have to actually go out and practice it for it to mean anything. And one more. Oh. I mean, you are a badass. It, mm. it's, it's got every, it's got all the starting points in one place delivered like by a stand-up comedian. And, and I say that because it can be so easy for me to yes. get so serious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm right there with you, my friend. Is is there anything that uh, people would be surprised to learn about you, or some something that most people don't know about you? Hmm. I don't know how many people know this because I I built a project around it, but I I wear the same clothes every single day. Mm -hmm. I have copies of the same outfit. This this is my workout uh, outfit. And so about once a year, I'll, I'll go and I'll just buy five to seven copies of the same outfit. Same for my diet. I, my shopping cart hasn't changed at the co-op in four or five years. I eat the same food every week. <laughs> what else? I, right now I'm getting super into animal flow movement. And like I, I'm building a gym, an outdoor gym for getting into that pull-up bars, slack line, punching bag, little dirt spot to roll around in. That's my special interest right now. And I think I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I love that. Is, is, the, is there the reason behind particularly the outfit choice and the food choice just a decision fatigue thing or is there, is there more to it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's the way my brain is wired uh -huh. for one, and it has really helped me streamline my life mm -hmm. for whatever reasons. Um, I, I just do not like making those little decisions. Mm -hmm. And so it's taken that out of circulation. Predictability. I believe that the first psychological need that we all have is predictability. Once that's met, then we can get into variety and, and spontaneity. And so it kind of checks that box for me. I mean, there's a economical reason for it, like to buy clothes in bulk, buy food in bulk. I mean, it, it kind of works at that level. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Is, is there, or what is rather, an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Mm, this. This is my, my fat drink. Mm. And you talked about nutrition earlier. I, uh, I have found my, my morning drink. It's um, homemade bone broth, two tablespoons of grass-fed butter, uh, hishu wu, local honey, and three raw eggs. I wake up in the morning looking forward to this drink uh, every morning. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah, brother. I love that. Yeah. All right. Well, before I ask my very final question, is there anything that we didn't bring into this conversation that you'd like to bring in? Any wish for uh, the listeners? And if not, where can folks connect with you? Mm. One thing, I just want to celebrate you. Mm. I want to celebrate the uh, amazing openness that I feel when I talk to you. That's energetic. My neuroception trusts you, loves you. And I know that, that that's earned. Uh, part of it's natural, but I also know that you're a man who has put in the work. And I just want to celebrate you here I love talking, having conversations like this. I feel seen, I feel heard. I also felt challenged 
And that was a rush for me. You'd ask some of these questions and it's like, I, I don't have a canned answer. I didn't have a canned answer for any of this. And so speaking to your gifts as an interviewer, but then also the bigger vision for this project, like I get that you get something out of this and I really respect that. And then other people get something out of it too. It's like a win-win that you're creating. And so I just really respect that, man. <laughs> Thank you. And then one thing that I wish um, that everyone knew is that you can do a lot of this work for free, mm. like a lot. The, the internet, obviously libraries, support groups, Facebook groups. Um, and if you want to get started, uh, start small, start small, start with one thing a week that begins to change the uh, perspective that you're in. Um, and then also don't be afraid to reach out to people who are in this space that, that might seem inaccessible. When I was a, into poetry, one of my teachers said, write your favorite poets a handwritten letter, see what happens. So I was writing to these like famous poets thinking that, oh, they're just like in another universe and they all wrote me back. <laughs> like, and so I reach out to like the famous coaches and they don't all write me back, but I'm, I'm proving something to myself when I do that, that like I'm worthy to talk to, to send a message to so-and-so. And so those little wins, I think, stack up importantly. Yeah. So Zach, I want to just receive all that. It's something I'm working on is when I, when I get immense praise or compliments, receive appreciation. So I receive that. Thank you for the gift of your appreciation. And the final question that I asked, well, actually, I, I don't want to let you off the hook. We, you didn't share your, uh, where, where folks can connect with you. So Instagram, where else? Yep. Instagram is my central hub. It's where I post all of my content first. My handle is strengths life. So strength with an S and then life. And then my website is Zach Carlson and it's Z-A-C-H-C-A-R-L-S-E-N. They love me at the DMV.com. And you can schedule a, a 30 minute call there. If you want to experience what it's like to work with me, it doesn't have to be theoretical. You can actually do it. It's free. And those, yeah, those are the two places. Awesome. Well, I will link to that in the show notes. I'll link to both. I'll link to the books and resources that you mentioned as well. And the final question that I ask, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And I love hearing from every one of my guests, your personal definition of what it means to live a meaningful life. So what is a meaningful life to Zach Carlson with an E? <laughs> <laughs> meaningful life for me is... So I think the meaning of life for me is the pursuit of individual truth. And I think what makes that meaningful is when I braid myself together with the universe, life force. I look around at the world, at a, a plant, at a jaguar, at a butterfly, at a, a woman, at a 
uh, uh, redwood tree. And I think I didn't invent that. <laughs> like I didn't make that. I, I contributed nothing to the creation of that. And the force that did create that, God, the universe, the cosmos, however we, we, we want to conceptualize it, is available to me, through me, for me, as me, why would I deny that? Mm -hmm. And so playing by my own rules in harmonious relation with the universe itself. You're here. <laughs> well, Zach, I, as I already named earlier in this conversation, plenty for me to reflect on, listen back to in this conversation. As I challenged you, I was in a way challenging myself and uh, both listening to your response and thinking, how would I respond to this question? And there, there are so many ways in which we're always evolving, growing and ever unfinished. And yeah, my, my closing wish to the listener from this particular episode is that you realize that that's not a detriment to you, right? Like you are both completely whole as you are right now in this moment and unfinished and ever evolving and constantly changing. And in your definition that you just laid out beautifully of a meaningful life, there's a way in which we as humans view ourselves as separate than nature so that could be trees it could be other animals the food that we eat everything and we are a part of nature we are in in a lot of ways we are one with so my my wish to the listener is that just like nature we are perfect exactly as we are and that we are also always growing and changing and and seasonal and uh, yeah, to whoever is tuned in and listening, I, I hope that you took lots of notes on this one because there's so much for you to reflect on, go back on. And whenever you're listening, I hope you have a great rest of your day and take great care. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.